So first John, um, a, a strong background element that, um, John is dealing with, that the church is dealing with, that the apostles are dealing with, is that Gnosticism has um, crept into Christianity. There are those you're going to hear, uh, even, you know, what we say are scholars. And it's, you know, I have a hard time with that term because, um, you know, scholar implies knowledge, knowing, accuracy, and honestly, a lot of times, none of that is present. <laughs> they, they've been to school for a very long time. They have a degree. Uh, you know, they say, I'm not trying to inflate myself. In the, it's just that w when you lean into a title like that, and then discover there's little or nothing there, then, you know, what good is the title? What, is it, what does it mean to us, right? So, you know, in the, the you know, I, I always, I'm always bugged when people, you know, have like a doctorate, right? And then you find out that it was given to them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I have a certain degree of respect, uh, but not the same degree of respect as someone who's earned, right, a, a doctorate. And, uh, you know, the scholars will very often say that Gnosticism was a type of Christianity. It wasn't, a, it wasn't Christianity at all, okay? didn't come from Christianity. You know, they'll, they'll talk about this sect that emerged from Christianity. It didn't come out of Christianity. It was an entirely different belief system. And what was happening is it was running in competition to Christianity. And so Gnosticism starts trying to make itself appear to be like unto Christianity. You know, they're, they're saying like... Uh, you know, oh, well, we're Christians, and we believe in Jesus, and we have these same things. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've seen Mormonism say the same things. Well, honestly, Mormonism, uh, while you can say, oh, it came out of Christianity, not really. You know, Joseph Smith and his father created that from their own imagination. It didn't come out of Christianity. They, they took terminologies, right? You talk to the, the Mormon. You talk to somebody, you know, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, right? There you go. Church of Jesus Christ. Not at all. You know, they, they, they say Jesus, you say Jesus. They don't mean the Jesus you mean when you say Jesus. They, they worship an entirely different Jesus that was created by Joseph Smith. So Gnosticism, I'm not going to you know, go much further down that track, but Gnosticism was its own belief system. And the root of Gnosticism was knowledge. That was their, their whole thing. Um, when, when you look at American history and you see uh, the Revolutionary War and our departure from England, well, you can look around the world and see revolution spread like wildfire. Well, unfortunately, only one produced the freedom that we experience here in this nation. Uh, France was closer than Russia, right? Who, they had a revolution also. Uh, but, you know, that resulted in Leninism and eventually communism and a complete enslavement of the people and we're still combating what that revolution produced france embraced very little of christianity the core of what they were embracing in their revolution was wisdom right if they worshiped a god because many more of the people involved in the french revolution were not christian they were you know, deist at best. And if they worshiped a God, it was Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, 
right? It, it was not, you know, even uh, Christianity. So, so we, you know, we shouldn't take these things that are thrown at us from the world, even if it comes from a scholar or a group of scholars or some great body of men, women who, you know, have been, you know, exalted by other men and women. Uh, Christianity was its own entity. And Gnosticism recognized the power and the influence of Christianity and tried to pull from Christianity elements into itself and create something that would lure Christians away from their faith. They were, they were trying to ensnare Christians is what they were doing. Um, their um, base premise is all that is of the flesh, all that is earthly, is wicked. It's it's evil. It's to be avoided. That which is of the spirit. And honestly, you know, for our Bible studies, as we've examined it, uh, they're talking more about the soulish, right? The thought, the emotion. Because when we talk about the spirit, we're talking about the spirit of God, right? The Holy Spirit. They talk about spirit. They're talking about the person. You know, what C.S. Lewis coined as being the ghost that runs the machine, right? The spirit inside you, right? That runs the physical body. So, so the terminologies, you know, when you blend Gnosticism in, it's worth your time for me to explain all of this because as you begin into this, uh, in reading John, what you discover is that a lot of what he's saying is combating what the Gnostics were teaching. So this concept that that which is spiritual is good, holy, pure, that which is fleshly, earthly is evil, bad, should be avoided, grows until the Gnostics are saying, well, sure, I get drunk. Sure, I you know, cheat on my wife and do terrible things. But that's all of the flesh. In my spirit, I'm a deeply pure person. Right? Do you hear how, right? Do you hear how the apostles are combating that frame of mind when Paul is addressing that very issue and talking about the things done in the flesh, how they are to be reconciled with the spirit and we cannot separate these things, right? That that we should render our body a living sacrifice to the Lord. So they're constantly combating and by the time you get to John's writings it's, it's a fevered pitch between Christianity and Gnosticism. Uh, the, the conflict has grown to the degree that the Gnostics by this time are even saying Jesus was not physical. Because he was pure, he was holy, he was good. That's undeniable. So therefore, he must not have been physical. Right? Because that which is physical is evil and sinful and all these things. So they're, they're making up stories about how, you know, there were, they're saying, the Gnostics are saying, there were eyewitness accounts of how Jesus was walking on the beach with the apostles and people noticed that Jesus wasn't leaving any footprints in the sand. You know, all lies generated by the Gnostics. You know, they make up lies about how Jesus never ate any food in all the years that people were with him because he was a spirit. He wasn't physical. He, he wasn't a tangible physical. They, they go as far by the end of it by saying no one ever actually touched him because he was a ghost. He was an apparition, according to their teachings. right? Because people are asking questions. Well, you know, if that which is physical, fleshly, is sinful, then how can you be telling us to embrace Jesus and the teachings of Jesus because Jesus lived physically. He was a physical man. You know, they're making excuses for themselves. Well, of course I sin. I'm, I'm made of flesh. Well, Jesus was made of f flesh, but he was sinless. Well, right, he was sinless. Well, okay, then he must not have been made of flesh. Right? They're, they're doing all of this backwards calculation to try and justify their false belief system. And, and all of that is to try and win converts over from Christianity into their belief system. So I'll, I'll try to point it out specifically, but you'll take notice as we move through of the things John specifically says and, and go back and think about 
the occasions where John specifically mentions that even after the resurrection, Jesus is eating broiled fish and honeycomb, right? He's, he's, he's making sure. Yeah, I remember that. We ate food with him. So he's making sure that the Christians understand that before and after the resurrection, Jesus Christ was physical. He's not part of the Gnostic belief system. So jumping uh, right in here, uh, well, I say jumping right in, I would uh, wanted to start out with Acts chapter 17, verse 11, and encourage us all um, with a couple points. There, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Paul's talking about the Bereans, right? He's in Berea, and he's saying that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they gladly received what was delivered to them in teaching by Paul and others, but then they would daily search the scriptures to see whether those things were true or not is essentially what it was saying. They gladly accepted them, but then they verified them. Okay, You actually hear Abraham Lincoln uh, talking about this as a general concept when he was president, he, he said, trust and verify. You know, there, there's there's a, a, a friendliness and a caution in that. Uh, I want to clarify that in our culture, and I mean the Christian culture, there is an attitude today which is actually one that's very divisive, and it's one um, that is uh, very suspicious, that uh, you know they they'll say that they are a discerning ministry. You, you know they they live, some of them online actually label themselves as a discerning ministry. And when what they do is they nitpick, they find every little thing that they feel as though is somehow misaligned with either their doctrine, their belief system, or the Word of God, and then they make a huge thing about it and declare that whoever said those things uh, is a heretic and no one should ever listen to them. Uh, you know, and they declare themselves to be Bereans. Well, well, what it is is they're really critical, right? Often very hyper-legalistic, and they're viewing everybody under some self-created microscope of biblical examination. Right? Paul said the Bereans gladly accepted what they were being taught, right? They, they, they weren't always viewing everything through the lens of rejection and criticism. They had open hearts and friendly attitudes to receive what Paul was teaching them. And then they examined the scripture and, and found those things to be true. So my encouragement to you is to be a Berean, but that also means you should examine the word of God. Okay, it is very lazy to sit here and just receive what I am saying without examining those things for yourself. You need to be daily digesting the Word of God. You need to look at the Word and see what those things line up. In the very beginning of our study, I'm going to jump into several different passages of the Scripture, and you need to look at those things and examine them for yourself, not just in the study but in your own as you pray and you seek the Lord that you would know whether what you're being taught is true or not. Uh, you can lead yourself into a place uh, where, listen, even if what I'm teaching you is good and right and proper, forgive me, <clears throat> if you don't examine them, then you're only believing them because you blindly accepted them. If someone comes along with an effective enough attack because you haven't built this belief system for yourself, if your belief system is built on one man's words, another man's words can tear them down. So you need to be a student of the scripture for your own sake, for your own faith to examine these things and see whether they be so. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, the first 
six words, that which was from the beginning. Okay. Now, uh, we have these statements made about the beginning in the scripture at least three times that are very specifically referring to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the debate begins there, right? Well, was that actually the beginning? Right? Did God start creation, you know? 4,000 years before that, 6,000 years before that, 10,000 years before that. Really good Bible teachers will tell you, really good Bible teachers will tell you that uh, Genesis and creation weren't the beginning. That God started long before that. Okay? Well, look, where's the beginning then? Okay? Why does the scripture call it the beginning? What, what, well, what it comes down to is they have this need in their unstable heart to somehow reconcile the ungodly belief system of evolution with the Bible and Christianity. So, oh, well, you know, uh, hey, we, we've tested the rocks and we've discovered that the earth is older than, you know, what the Bible says. And so, you know, clearly creation began before. So how, how do we determine where, what's the beginning? Well, do you trust the word or not? That's what it comes down to. Okay. I just want to put a few things in place and then I'll discuss a little bit of science, hopefully just a little bit. I tend to get on tangents, but so here's the deal. The very first thing to recognize is that in Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes to Eve, and what he says is, did God say, and I just stop right there, right? Because what he says is, did God say that you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? But the question really is, did God say? Okay, so, so when we read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, then the devil today, right, through the mystical realm, says to your mind, did God actually create? He calls into question God's word. This is what the devil always does. He causes human beings to question God's word. Oh, and you know, Nova and Discovery and the scholars help. Right? They jump in behind and they throw all these different things out and everybody's left questioning God's word. Well, well, here's the thing. Okay, We'll talk about science in just a second, but what does the scripture say? I think that's pretty clear. Right? If you take the scripture and, and examine it for what it says, it tells us God created and that was the beginning. And we'll talk about Jesus telling us where the beginning was in just a moment. But it then specifically tells us Adam and Eve, right? And then it tells us their lifespan and then their children and their lifespan and their children's children and their lifespan all the way up to Abraham. And so now you've got 2,000 years and then you've got 2,000 years till Jesus and now you've got 2,000 years from Jesus. So if we take the biblical summary, we got 6,000 years roughly from Adam to where we sit today. I say that, and there's a whole bunch of people in our culture that just pull their hair out. Right? Because, oh, no, it's uh, way too short, way too short. Because they've been being fed this line that, no, it's millions and billions of years. Okay, well, uh, let's, let's hear Jesus' words on it first. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read? Okay, so he's putting the whole argument in the Bible, right? He doesn't say, what do the scientists of your age say? He doesn't say, what is the most common opinion today? He doesn't say a whole bunch of things. What he says has, do you not read your Bible? That's what he says. Do you not read your Bible, which implies, do you not trust your Bible? <laughs> do you not know and do you not trust your Bible, is what Jesus is saying. Have you not read? Now listen, if you think I'm making 
more of that than there really is in the context. You've got to understand who he's talking to, right? He's talking to the religious leaders that are all about the Bible. Particularly those religious leaders, when they were young men, went through what was referred to as the school of the book, where by the time they were 12 years old and they you know, became a son of, a bar, son of the mitzvah of the book, son of the book, before they became a son of the book, they had to have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a lot of memorization of some pretty complex stuff. And now Jesus is saying, do you guys ever read your Bible? Imagine how insultive that would be to one of these religious leaders. He slaps him right in the face with, read your Bible, Kashwak. right? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, where's the beginning? Male and female. He puts the beginning right at Adam and Eve. Right? Six days. Six days in. That's the beginning right there. Day one. Just like he told us, right? You know, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> and morning and evening were the first day. The first 24-hour light cycle was the first day. How peculiar, right? Hard to imagine. And the second 24-hour light cycle was the second day. Right? Not the second age, not the second thousand year, not the second millionth year. It was the second, 20, 48 hours in. And then morning and evening were the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day. And then God rested on the seventh day. God created in six literal days, 24-hour light cycles. How do I know it? The Word of God says so. How do I know that's accurate? I don't question God's Word. I don't question God's word. Well, oh, well, we've tested the rocks. Oh, well, first they say we've, we've carbon dated. Carbon dated, really? Okay, glad you brought it up. <clears throat> because you're talking about, right, carbon-14. And you've got a stable side of the carbon and an unstable side of the carbon. Ready, science class? The unstable side of the carbon deteriorates and goes away. The stable side remains. So you can measure the stable side, and you know how much carbon you started with, and you can measure the deterioration of the unstable side, and you can know how long ago it died. Because it was absorbing carbon right up until the day that it died. And now it dies, and the carbon starts depleting out of the unstable side. Until you reach zero. Now here's the thing. Zero is 88,000 years. End of discussion. That's according to science. The oldest you could ever use carbon dating to date anything, according to their calculations, is 88,000 years. That's the end of the discussion. That's not my science. That's their science. Now here's the problem. Creation Research Institute, San Diego, California... Uh, early 80s, wants to test the testing. So they take a live mollusk, right? Clam-like creature. Take a segment of its shell. It's alive. They keep it alive. They send it away for carbon dating. And they tell them, which is part of the dating process, the question is going to be, where did you find this shell in the geological column? Right? If you tell them, we found it at 10,000 years, or 2 million years, or 5 million years, that's the depth we found it at. They do their calculation, and they send it back to you and tell you, you're right. It was approximately 5 million years old. So they take the next section, they're lying, and they tell them, we found this one at 10,000 years. They do their calculation and send back the results and say, you're right. This is roughly 10,000 years old. And every time they send in their sample, the mollusk is still alive. Every time they send in their sample, it comes back with whatever they've fed them for data. They're not testing anything. 
Okay, and here's the thing. Again, according to their calculations, the best that they could render you is 88,000 years. Because this, the unstable side depletes to zero at 88,000 years. So if you had if you had a gajillion years and something died a gajillion years ago, then 88,000 years would be like maxed out. That'd be it. That's all they could ever tell you. So carbon dating is useless. Useless. Anytime you have read or heard or had anyone tell you that they've discovered through carbon dating that such and such a thing was such and such a million years old, you just shut your brain right off at that point because it's not possible to date anything through carbon dating that old. All of the scientific community knows this. This is how they have formulated their structure. Here's another thing. You don't know how much carbon it was absorbing 10,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. This was an entirely different atmosphere then than it is now. So, so that aside, the second method is, oh, well, um, radioactive halos inside rock structures, particularly granite is what they prefer. Maine has a lot of them. So there's a radioactive seed. So it's a, a small particle of radioactive material trapped inside rock. And when they cut through the layer of the rock, what they're looking for is the largest ring. So the seed of radioactive material is emitting its radioactive uh, radioactivity out into a sphere around that little tiny seed. And when they start slicing into the rock and they find the seed at the very center and they find the full expanse of the radioactive expansion inside the rock, then they say, okay, we know radioactivity deteriorates at such and such a rate, and that would take this long to make a, a ring this big around. That's, I'm, you know, just dumbing it way down for myself. But here's the thing. That radioactive seed only emits its radiation at greater than 5,000 degrees. That's really, really hot, huh? Right? Like liquid rock. That's what they don't want to discuss is the fact that that radiation is only released from that seed when that stone is liquid. And guess what? It happens all at once. Boom. All of the, the heat causes the rapid deterioration expansion and it emits all of its radiation at once. And then the rock hardens, and that's where the halo is. That's where the, the sphere is formed. So this whole concept of, you know, when we take this seed and we put it here in the laboratory and we let it emit its radiation and we come back, you know, one year later, it's expanded out this much and 2 and 10, 25. And six, so if it's out this big, then that must have happened 400 million years ago. Well, I'm really exaggerating. The point is, it doesn't emit its radiation into rock that way, right? If it was put in there, like you drilled a hole and you put it down in there and you sealed it in, it would hold the radiation in and wouldn't allow it to escape. Rock is a protective barrier and holds it in. The only way that, that sphere ends up in the rock is under superheated conditions. So all of these things that they're presenting to us all the time that make us feel really dumb. You know, you say, oh, God created the earth, you know, 6,000 years ago, and they laugh at you, and then they drag out their big rock and say, look, explain this, and you're supposed to feel really dumb. That's the whole thing that they're doing. They all stand around and agree together, and everybody shakes hands that, yep, that's what we're going to say, and then the rest of us are supposed to feel foolish. Jesus Christ was in the beginning, okay, in the beginning, which very specifically the term is in the beginning, right, because he was before the beginning. He's eternal, right, he's God. So in the beginning, he was there. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. We'll go further than the first six words this time. 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He's not a ghost. We've touched him. We have handled him. The word of life. John is combating the Gnostics in this sense. Now, pause again right there. And let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1. We're in 1 John. We want to go back to the gospel of John. And look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, so that in the beginning is referencing Genesis in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. So the word, right, the term was, is past tense. So when you get to Genesis chapter 1, and we know that is the beginning, then the word already was. It it pre-existed the beginning. Okay, and now, now, I'll accept the thought. I'll accept the meditation of what was God doing before the beginning. Okay? Angels, heaven, right? Lots of expansive eternity out there that's way worth your time. To think about, pray about, read about, sure, yes, absolutely. But as far as where we are and where we stand and what exists right here and right now, that has a very distinct beginning. And Jesus said that that beginning was where Adam and Eve were, which was within a six-day light cycle. So that's the beginning as far as earth goes. But before the beginning, the word existed. When it came to the beginning, he was in the beginning. He was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Most of you know this whole breakdown very thoroughly. But here's the thing. It's important that we establish this very clearly. The word is going to be Jesus when we get to to verse 14. Uh, But the word, right, was with and was God. Now, now here's here's another thing for your mind to go home and wrestle with, right? Because when God begins creation, he speaks it into existence, okay? So word, word, spoken word, brings everything into existence. And your mind kind of goes, well, I just have to kind of accept that. Well, now go the opposite direction. Rather than being expansive, go internal, go microscopic, and understand that your DNA is written word. Everything you are made from is written word. You you are made from, you are made from written word. It's astonishing to consider that our physical frame is written word. R- really difficult for, uh, for us to wrap our heads around this. God spoke everything to, into existence, and we just sort of dismiss that as mystical. But then the scripture and nature tells us, no, it's literal, physical. Written word. You, you are. This is, this is the biggest evidence against evolution. Okay? In that, how does something gain function? Through DNA. DNA dictates it. DNA says, right, you will have fingers. DNA says you will have fingernails. DNA says you will have eyes. DNA says you will have retina. DNA says you will have cones and rods in your retina. DNA says you will have rhodopsin on the back of your retina so that when the lights go out, all your cones shut off, all your rods are flooded with rhodopsin, and now you have night vision. DNA says all of these things. All of the stuff that your body does that's so miraculous 
DNA says so. Go down to the smallest particle. If you haven't had the opportunity to read Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, I would strongly recommend that to you. Uh, Michael Behe is the world's leading microbiologist. Okay? So, real idiot. You know, somebody just is, probably failed his math class or something. But anyway. <clears throat> he does a thing that he develops a concept in the early 80s called irreducible complexity to argue against evolution. So the world's leading microbiologist renounces Darwinistic evolution. And he says that it's impossible because of what is he coins irreducible complexity. And he uses the mousetrap as an illustration. Right? Mousetrap, basic format, Spring hammer, right? You've got two staples on a wooden platform, spring hammer, pull spring hammer back, put latch over the spring hammer and lock it into what's called the scandalon or the trip on it. And that's the entirety of your mouse uh, trap. You take one element, one element of that away and the mouse trap does not work. It's sort of complex, but it's super simple. You can't, irreducible complexity. You cannot reduce this thing by one element or it will not work. Doesn't function. Evolution says that the mouse trap at one point was one element. If you're talking biologically, and that it wanted to have more things added to it. So it willed itself to change until it added something to itself. Well, here's the thing. Whatever thing you're talking about, let's start with the block of wood that everything gets attached to, right? If the block of wood is just there in eternity and it wants to become a mousetrap, but it knows it needs a spring hammer... It can't add to itself the written information that says we need the spring hammer. The DNA that made the block of wood is all that was there. So now move up into his illustration, which is the single-celled amoeba. One cell, okay? Single-celled amoeba, and he goes in his discussion, in this discussion of irreducible complexity, to the flagellum, which is this hair-like corkscrew on the back of this single cell. And this hair-like corkscrew spins at 1,500 revolutions a second. That's pretty remarkable. And propels the amoeba through the water so that, or the, the liquid so that it can get what it needs food, sustenance, energy, to reproduce itself. That flagellum is made up of 40 individual parts. Okay? So the mousetrap has its specific number. The flagellum has 40 individual parts. Now here's what's remarkable about the flagellum. I said I was going to go a long ways into this scientific discussion, didn't I? <clears throat> the 40 parts of the flagellum are gears to a motor that are electrically driven and water-cooled. How about that, Shane? A water-cooled electric motor, which seems like it should short itself out, right? But it does not. 1,500 revolutions a second, it can stop and reverse so that it can be going forward and suddenly go backwards on a quarter turn. Cranking at 1,500 revolutions a second, it can stop in a quarter turn and reverse. Electric motor, gear driven. Now, now, now let me take you another direction with this discussion. Darwin referred to single the single cell as a meaningless globule. 
You know, now we're just making up words, right? That doesn't sound very meaningless. That doesn't sound like it's without plan. Now, let, let's go into this motor, right? Because how this thing reproduces itself, which is really quite remarkable, it doesn't procreate. It just multiplies. So inside itself, there are molecules that go to the DNA strand, which is inside of this single-celled amoeba, and they unwind, right? You, you know the double helix looks like that spun ladder. They unwind it, and they find the section for the part of that motor they're going to build. They don't build the whole motor. They're going to build one gear for this motor. They find the section on their own, that pertains to the one gear they're going to build, and they bring corresponding chemicals to that blueprint, which is now called RNA, right? The replica of the DNA. They take it to a portal in the side of the amoeba. The portal reads the RNA, if the RNA has been assembled correctly, the portal will open and allow those molecules to transport that outside of the cell. Okay? If it's not correct when it brings it to the portal, if it's not correct, the, the portal will not open up. It makes the molecules take it back and disassemble the chemicals, go back to the RNA, unwind it, read it again, and copy the corresponding chemicals to take it outside so that it isn't constructed improperly when it takes the rna outside there's another series of molecules that come and they take the uh rna and fold it up into the proper pattern so now that's a gear now here's the thing they do this in order properly right think about this like a house you're going to build a house got all kinds of chemicals and molecules moving around that are going to build your house and they're reading the DNA to copy the RNA to build you a house. I mean, what happens if they build the roof first? Right? They need to build the foundation first, right? And then they need to build the floor joists and then they need to put the walls up and then they need to put the roof up. There's an order to the construction that needs to take place. All of these things know how to go to the DNA, find the proper sequence, copy the proper part first, transport it outside. And that's why you see in the microscopic picture, this thing sort of swells and then sort of becomes almost two and then it forms and then it breaks apart. That's what you're watching happen. And that's an accident? Look, if, if the single-celled amoeba starts out in the puddle of cosmic soup without a flagellum, it's not going to survive. Irreducible complexity. When it comes into existence, the first time it needs to have complete DNA on board so that it builds all 40 parts for that motor exactly the way that it's supposed to, so that it can propel through the fluid, so that it can collect the food and the energy so that it can duplicate itself. And if anything is wrong with its duplication process, you guys, then you end up with an inferior product that dies prematurely and doesn't reproduce itself. DNA, right? Spoken, written language. Four, four letters, right? Four letters. Genu geniusly sequenced in all things so that you and I can sit here and talk like this. I'm, I'm talking to you right now, and there's another miracle occurring we've talked about many times of sight and sound and hearing. God's miracle is all through creation. This is not, nothing is an accident. Nothing is improving itself. All right? Single-celled amoeba does not add DNA. Single-celled amoeba doesn't say, you know what I really need? I need this much code written to be added to my DNA so that the next time 
I develop. I've got legs, man. Or eyes. Or even the next step towards developing eyes, right? It can't add information to itself. Now here's the thing. All of the scientists want to point at the evolution that we see going on. And if you're shocked by that, let me explain, right? Where, well, let's take massive, large dog, Malmute, and let's breed smaller and smaller dogs together that descend from the Malmute for thousands of years until we have that which is not dog, Chihuahua, right? You know. Grossly inferior, if you like chihuahuas, I apologize. But, you know, here's it. <clears throat> Mental problems, all kinds of problems with the chihuahua. But here's the thing. Still thinks he's a malmute. Trying to kill everybody he is crazy. <clears throat> so so here's, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Follow me. I'm being humoristic, and that's taken away. But follow this. <clears throat> that which was in the entirety of dog... You have bred shorter and shorter hair, smaller and smaller, until you get all the way down to here, dog. And they say, see, evolution. Well, here's the thing. Really what you're talking about is de-evolution. Right? Because unlike what I just described to you, information's not being added. Information's being lost. As you breed down, less and less and less and less and less information. And here's here's the proof in this. We can look at it genetically and know that for certain, but here's the, the basic. You cannot breed back up the line. It's impossible. You can take Chihuahua and reach somewhere back up the line and breed Chihuahua with something back up the line and the elements that haven't been lost that are still in the superior can be bred into the Chihuahua, and now you get something else. But really all you're doing is adding that information that's there. You can't take two Chihuahua that have lost all of that information and just breed them together and, you know, take the bigger ones and breed them with the bigger ones and the hairier ones and breed it until you get back to the Malmute. The information's gone. It's been lost. And that's what's happening with the human race. And let me speak to all my brothers and sisters who I love so dearly who are all hung up on conspiracy theories about autism and, you know, food allergies and a lot of these things. Most of what's going on in that scenario is de-evolution. Most of it. Food, you go food source and, and, you know, uh, vaccines and the, okay. So maybe some of those are affecting, but here's the thing. The reason that it's affecting us now is because our genetics are breaking down. We are losing more and more and more and more. We, because we're closer to the end, closer to the end. Everybody's thinking along the lines of evolution, right? We're getting better all the time. We're improving all the time. We're getting smarter all the time. Look, we've got a smartphone and we've all become idiots. No? What's the most common use for the smartphone? Social media. Social media. How intelligent is this thing making us? Right? What we are engaged in. Look, we still have stones that were put in place by what we call ancient man that we have no idea how they did it. And we, we can't even with our massive machinery reproduce it. Stones that weigh more than a hundred ton. We know where they were quarried. We know the landmass they were transported over. They were set in place. Guys, the bottom of them were so perfectly cut that they exactly fit the bedrock that they were set on. Perfectly mirroring everything that's there. Set it down. Suctions into place. Still there to this day. We can't do this, right? We have to like pulverize the rock and put up a big form and pour it in there as liquid to do, to do what they did in the ancient world. Concrete. 
And then it doesn't last the way that the stone did. We are inferior. Inferior to ancient man. When I built towers, right, I built towers for almost a decade, I used what's called 3-4-5 uh, uh, triangulation to calculate the length of a guy wire based upon the Egyptians' mathematics for the slope of a pyramid, right? Because if I set a tower up here like this, and it's on a mountainside like that, then this uphill guy wire is going to be much shorter than this downhill guy wire here. So I've got to measure the distance from the base to my anchor point from there to the height, uh, add them together, divide by three to get this triangulated calculation for the three, four, five triangulation of that guy wire. I'm using Egyptian math. Inferior. We are de-evolving. We are, we are falling apart, which is what the scripture tells us, right? From Adam and Eve. Don't eat of that tree. Because in dying, you will die. And that means the whole human race. We are, we are getting worse and worse. What are, what are we perfecting? Death. Right? Three quarters of the world's scientists are employed by military. For killing. Right? We, we, are, we know how to kill people. You know? So bad that at times we go, oh, that's ugly. Like, we can't kill people that way. Cluster bomb, outlawed. Chemical warfare, outlawed, right? All these different things that, ooh, that's too effective at killing people. That's what we're really good at, death. Death is what we're good at. In the beginning, right, God created all of these things through the word. Through the word. And that, that evidence is inside your frame right now. You, you are made up of DNA. You are made up of the spoken word of God that was spoken 6,000 years ago. And here you sit tonight. Every single living thing is based upon word spoken by God. So I got you in John chapter 1. We were at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. Do you hear what I just said to you for the last like 10 minutes? And how this is confirming that? You know, all things were made through him. The word, the word made all things made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That word comprehend is an unfortunate translation. Right? Because the real definition is overcome. The, the, the darkness did not overcome the light. Even at the crucifixion, the, the light was not defeated. Right? Some people thought it went out for three days. It wasn't out. It was buried underground. And after three days, that, that word said, enough is enough. And it stood up. And it breathed life again. So there in John chapter 1, if you drop down to verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is what we're talking about. All things came into existence through Jesus. Jesus created everything. Oh, then people read and they say, well, no, it says right over here, God the Father created all things. Right. Right, yeah. God created all things. Jesus created all things. The Holy Spirit created all things. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, the Godhead, created all things. Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Oh, I can't understand that. Right. Exactly. You know why? Because it's God. It's God. And I'll dwell on that just for a moment, because as he makes man on the sixth day, what does he say? Let us, plural God, 
make man in our plural God own image. Let's make man in our own image. And you are body, soul, and spirit. You are a trinity, right? Now don't think of that, as I've said many times, as you being somehow equal to God in a weird way. Benny Hinn literally was saying for a while, he hasn't ever taken it back, repented, or apologized for it, so it's still one of his false teachings. He said that I'm a little God, and you're a little God. We are all little gods. I can create as God created. No, you amant. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you're completely wrong there, pal. That, that's, that's not true. That's false doctrine right there. Okay. <clears throat> so if you've got a huge mirror, you know, you stand in front of it, make sure that you, you know, don't have grease spots on your shirt or, you know, whatever. You just got to, you know, you actually combed your hair and brushed your teeth and don't have poppy seeds anywhere. You know, that, that mirror is an image of you, right? And it's a very, the better the mirror, the more accurate the image of you is. But at no point can the mirror say, I'm equal to the substance, okay? We are created in the image of God. We are a pale reflection of our creator. We do have a triune aspect to our existence. You know, you can easily see the difference between your soul and your body. You know, some people want to argue that. They think, oh no, death proves, right? At death, you know, my body shuts off and my soul is gone and I just decompose. Yeah, well, how about dreaming? What's that all about? Your body's off, but your brain's still on doing stuff, right? Some of you have actually had the weird experience of uh, your body is still sound asleep, but your soul decides, hey, let's get up and do stuff. Right? And walk around. Right? Or some of you have also had the shameful, unfortunate experience of pouring alcohol into your body until the body couldn't take it anymore. And it just shut down and said, well, you know, let's just keep going anyway. Let's drive this car. Let's take all the money out of our bank account. Let's do terrible things. Right? The soul is shut off and the body's awake, just out doing things. There, there is a separate existence between your mind and between your body. And you can, if you squint a little bit, see that there is a difference between the soul and the spirit. Because sometimes you come to a certain decision and it's probably your spirit that's saying, we should not do this at all. And your soul is saying, yeah, but we really like it. And your spirit's saying, we are going to pay a heavy cost. Do you remember last time? And your soul saying, don't really care. Do you remember how much we enjoy this? You know how much I want to do this? I don't really care what the consequences are. Let's go do it anyway. And usually that happens because your soul and your body, right, are dynamic duo evil twins. Your flesh wants something, right, that it shouldn't want. And your soul seat of your emotion likes it also. And it basically stuffs your spirit in a locker somewhere and shuts it up. And it goes and does what it wants to. And usually, even if your spirit later, when you're paying the consequences, is saying, I told you so, usually what happens is the soul just beats the stuffing out of the spirit. And abuses it. It's not until you bend your knee to Jesus Christ and say, give me your spirit. That you start gaining an upper hand. So we are created in his image by God in those six days. This confirmation is that the word 
has given these things to us. I'm going to read just these three verses to close us out. When we get back together again, we'll have to back up to verse 2. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And that's where I want to leave you tonight. That whatever your struggle is, know this. Know this. Number one, your joy can be full. Full to overflowing. Right? And that's a lot of our struggle, isn't it? Because the emotion and the soul is dissatisfied. But here's the thing. Here's the, hear me in this. The soul thrives on happiness. Happiness is fleeting. This scripture is not promising you happiness. It's promising you joy. Joy never goes away. Joy can't be taken from you, right? Good news, right? No matter what happens to you here, as a child of God, you're going to end up in the presence of God. That's awesome, isn't it? And if you fix your focus on that, then no matter what you're going through, you can endure this, okay? So that can't ever be taken away from you. Now, your happiness can be taken away from you. Can be, you can be robbed blind of your happiness. But if you get your eyes back on the joy, right, then you, can, you might not get all that happy. Strange as that sounds, you might be able to have enough joy in the tank, right, to get through, to, to, to rely upon Christ, to experience whatever you need to, and just, just drag along, just plow through, just push. Why? I'm going to endure this. This is going to change. Christ is going to restore. There will be happiness at the end of this, right? You know, Chuck Smith years ago gave that illustration. If you come to me and you say I'm in dire financial problems, Will, um, can you help me out? And I say, what's the total sum? What do you really need? What's your financial issue? I need $10,000. I go, well, that's a big deal, but I'm going to give it to you. So you were depressed and anxious, and I write you the check for $10,000. And I give it to you, and your, your happiness is restored until you go to the bank. I don't have $10,000, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just like not only I write you, you were, you were down in the dumps. And depressed till I wrote you a check. Now you're happy. Hooray! Pastor Will gave me ten thousand dollars. You're gonna you're gonna sink lower than you were before you came to me because now not only do you not have ten thousand dollars, what kind of jerk is Will? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're gonna like you're not ever gonna come to the church again. Like all kinds of stuff is gonna be bad. Do you see how temporary happiness is? Right? You got robbed of it and you had nothing and then I gave you a piece of paper and you thought you were happy until you found out the paper was worthless and now you're way down low. I mean, happiness is a roller coaster ride, man. Joy can't ever be taken from you and that's what John is promising you. Right? Why? He says, because I've handled this thing. Jesus. I've handled it. I've literally put my hands on Jesus. That's what John is telling you, right? We, we have to, thousands of years later, trust this man who was referred to as the apostle whom Jesus loved, right? This man, by the he is the only surviving elder at this point. He is referred to by the entire church as the elder. Because he's the only one left. And he's telling this young church, who most of them, right, well, by this time, none of them saw Jesus, touched Jesus, handled Jesus, and he's telling you, I did. And I'm writing this to you so that your joy can be full. That reaches all the way to you and me tonight. This, jo this joy that John is promising us, this is a big deal. Do we not need joy? I read the news today. 
I need joy, right? Because the news robbed me of happiness. It's a terrible world. It's a terrible world. We need these examples. We need these men. We need this gospel. And I would encourage you, read ahead. Read ahead through first, second, you know, one, two, three, four, and five of this chapter and, and absorb, right? You know, I love the fact that what 5.13, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you know you have eternal life, right? We need to know that sometimes, don't we, right? Because at times we forget and at times we question. And John is saying, no, you can know it. You can know that you have eternal life. This is a very powerful book for the church to hang on to what John is promising us. So I pray that the Lord would continue to minister to you and you'd find that your joy was full. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for you and your word and the promises in it. Help us to cling to what you have given us. We thank you for this great gift and ask that you would accomplish your will and your purposes in each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.